0: Thank you for joining us. The Dacus Report is on the air to defend your religious freedom, your parental rights, and other civil liberties. And now, with the latest information, is your host, the president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus. Welcome to the Dacus Report. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Brad Dacus, president of the Pacific Justice Institute. On today's show, I want to talk about uh, some of the the issues that are facing us with regards to the, the new version of the coronavirus, the Omicron, and its impact potentially even on the Supreme Court as it's presently uh, deliberating as we speak. Uh, Tell me, address those and other issues we have with us here on the phone uh, or on the the Zoom, or excuse me, on the air. (laughs) We do all those things, uh, but uh, on the air, we have with us uh, attorney Emily Mimnod. Thank you, Emily, for joining us.
1: Hey, Brad, good morning.
0: Well, good morning to you too. Uh, So, Emily, First, I want to talk and address about uh, the issue going on in Australia before we get into the other uh, issues dealing with the mandates and all. Uh, what, what's going on there? I mean, it, it seems like Australia is uh, treating their tennis star, this you know, from another country, not with the the greatest respect, but actually treating him like a prisoner. Uh, what's what's the breakdown here?
1: It's a curious case. Uh, this involves tennis star, world number one, I should say, Novak Djokovic, who is Serbian. And full disclosure, I am a huge Djokovic fan, so I am a little bit biased. But what is happening, and this is a story that's been unfolding now, but what originally, and we were going to talk about this last week, and we didn't get to it, but what has happened is that we're coming into, and they're already starting to play the qualifiers for the Australian Open. And that's one of the big four tournaments of the year. You have the Australian Open that kicks off the season you have the New York U.S. Open that finishes it. And in between, you have the French Open, Roland Garros, and you have Wimbledon. So this is, a, this is a big deal. It's kind of like one of the Super Bowls, if you will, of tennis. And the world number one, Novak Djokovic, is a bit of, uh, you know, he, he's, a, he's a, the dark sheep of the tennis world, I guess. The black sheep in the sense that he has been pretty outspoken and vocally critical of vaccine mandates. He has not previously stated whether or not he's been vaccinated, but of course we know that Australia has been in the news over and over and over again because of its really extreme draconian, I would say unconstitutional, but of course it's another country, but their reaction and responses to COVID throughout the entire pandemic. And so when Novak Djokovic applied for an exemption from vaccination on the basis of a medical reason, which we don't know all the details, he uh, we were, you know, the world was kind of waiting to see what was going to happen. because It's a big deal if you're not going to let the world number one into your country for the one of the biggest tournaments of the year. And sure enough, last week, it was announced that he had received he had received this exemption. So people were surprised. And our, our discussion about this last week, you know, we, we said, well, that doesn't actually necessarily mean that they're going to let him through the border. Okay. And sure enough, on Thursday morning, they said, actually, your visa has been revoked. And you're going to a refugee camp or, sorry, a detainee camp.
0: Okay. So, so when he got to the border, the Australian border, uh, he was then told he had to go to a a concert, like a a camp. Uh, I say, I like to say concentration camp. That sounds a little strong, but uh, that's going to detain him like a prisoner. That's how he was greeted.
1: That is how he was greeted. It's not technically a camp. It is technically a hotel, but it's not a hotel anyone would willingly stay at. Reports, including the London Times, have talked about maggot-infested food. So this this, this is not a hotel anyone would willingly go Mm -hmm. to. So he had a 10-hour standoff with the Border Patrol at the airport where they said no. Ultimately, they said, no, your visa, which had been granted, had been approved, has been revoked. He was denied access to his attorneys, to his team. They actually told him to turn his cell phone off. And this is something that was later noted in the legal record is he went absolutely incommunicado and they they took away any of his rights at the border. And he was forced into this hotel where dozens of other detainees have been. And some of them pre-COVID. Some people have been there for almost a decade.
0: Oh, good night. Okay, so they're treating him, in essence, like a prisoner for all practical purposes here. Uh, He had a hearing. What happened at the hearing?
1: Right. So I actually did dial in and listen to part of the hearing. And, um, you know, there are Australian accents. But beyond that, there was a lot of legal, technical, procedural issues. But what was really interesting to me was that the bulk of the, the hearing, if you will, was not focused on the exemption itself. It wasn't focused on whether or not, you know, medically you could have an exemption. The question was rather procedurally, Australia had actually complied with its own rules. And this is where it gets a little bit interesting, because politically, this became an issue, not just internationally, where you had literally on the phone, the prime minister of Australia talking to the president of Serbia, you, you had what, what was originally, you know, kind of touted as a, oh, these celebrities think they're above the rules, we're going to really stick it to them, um, turned into a, actually, Australia wasn't following its own rules.
0: Okay, now, don't they have a rule regarding the, the idea that if you've had COVID in the past, uh, is, is that their position that he, he didn't have COVID prior, so he's he's not immune from the... I mean, wasn't that part of it, dealing with past... Uh, that,
1: that, that is part of it, and that's one of the interesting points, is that nobody disputes that he previously tested positive for COVID at least once. We know he has had COVID once publicly. And so he originally was told, and this is where some of the miscommunications start happening, he was told and all the tennis players were told that you could apply for an exemption if you previously had COVID within the last six months. His visa was approved and granted. Then the Australian government turned around and said, no, no, we're not allowing that anymore. You have to be currently recovering from a medical situation, which it turns out he also was. And so before he ever got to Melbourne, before he ever got to the airport. I, I kid you not, the state actually convened, the state convened its own independent medical panel to review his case. And they had independent experts from the state, from, from Melbourne, actually review his case and say, yes, he does qualify for an exemption. And then, frankly, I think to score cheap political points because, sure enough, they're in an election season, They the prime minister intervenes, it, it looks like, and, and basically decided that he's going to score some points, knock down this, you know outspoken tennis player and show that nobody is above the rules. And of course it turned out they weren't following their own rules.
0: Okay. So this really isn't about, about tennis. Uh, what are the consequences here? What are we looking at uh, as a result of these actions by Australia and, and how things are panning out?
1: Well, in, in the immediate judge, Anthony Kennedy um, Kelly, excuse me, ruled that you know the rules have been violated. His visa was properly granted. He is allowed to enter the country. So he's currently at um, at a tennis court, starting to practice. But it's not over. Australia has already they're they're kind of mm, waffling a little bit as to whether or not they're going to double down and try to deport him again. We don't know if that's going to happen or not. So they may they may continue what's kind of being called the blunder down under on the personal level. And then, you know, really internationally, this has turned not about tennis, it's really a political football that's being passed back and forth. And the question is, are these types of mandates going to start really barring prohibitively indefinitely, you know, international travel to the point that even if you have assurances all the insurances, and you have the best legal team, really, you could hope for, are you still going to be barred from entry, which, you know, has all kinds of devastating consequences for literally anybody who wants to travel outside of their country, or maybe even within their own state.
0: Yeah, you know, Australia has become a nightmare. Uh, whenever you can t- tell someone that it's, it's better and safer, and more freedom to be in communist China than Australia, you know, there's something wrong. Clearly. And Australia has become a, a literal nightmare for those who appreciate freedom, uh, the, the control, the tyranny. Uh, this should be a, a wake up call to what we could be seeing in the United States uh, if we don't step up to the plate and contest uh, attempts to try to uh, control our lives. And in fact, uh, Emily, I know there's an a op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal uh, dealing with the issue that uh, the Omicron apparently has basically invalidated the justification for the the mandates, these vaccine mandates that we've been facing that are presently uh, pending to some degree before the United States Supreme Court. Uh, Tell us about that. I think it was a very uh, interesting article.
1: It was a really interesting article, the general thesis of which is, in a nutshell, hasn't Omicron basically made the federal mandates outdated, moot, irrelevant. And it, this this article, this op-ed, was written by a Nobel Prize-winning physiologist alongside a constitutional lawyer, and, and the argument goes that you know you, it seems clear that the vaccinations can help reduce symptoms, obviously reduce hospitalization, risk of death. You don't have you don't have to argue that as a legal matter to say, but wait a minute. Isn't it the case that these vaccines, when they were considered um, by the federal various federal agencies before the Supreme Court—that's HHS, the healthcare mandate, and the OSHA mandate for private employees—weren't they thinking about Delta and, and not this Omicron variant, which is now the dominant, you know, the dominant um, COVID variant in the United States?
0: Yeah. In fact, I know that the uh, th- this new uh, Omicron uh, is just shoving out the Delta. Uh, completely, because once someone gets Omicron, they're immune from Delta. Delta can is 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 powerless, if you will, and Omicron is spreading 70 times faster than the Delta ever did, or the other viruses. So uh, the other uh, variances. So this is really uh, very important. Now, how does this all pan out? The the this new uh, information about the Omicron. Uh, how does that pan out in terms of? Uh, and relate to the oral arguments made recently before the United States Supreme Court uh, regarding the uh, the OSHA mandates and uh, the uh, Center for Medicaid, Medicare, I believe it is, uh, that uh, is also pushing for another, another set of mandates on hospitals. Um, how does this uh, information possibly relate to that, what the Supreme Court heard in oral argument?
1: I think the the analysis really says, wait a minute, let's get back to basics. Because the bulk of the arguments on Friday, understandably, were constitutional-based and administrative law or admin law-based, right? Saying, do you have the authority? Does this branch have the authority to regulate this type of this type of thing? Does this agency did you know did Congress give OSHA this power, this authority? And what this article says is, well, well, wait a minute. We, we've kind of skipped a step here because we've assumed we've assumed that there is an essential need that there is an essential purpose for this vaccine mandate. And what may have been true, what may have been true even a couple months ago on November 5, when the mandates were issued, were considered and issued, that may actually not be the case. As of January 1, the CDC said over 95% of the current cases in the United States are not Delta, they're Omicron. And so we need to be asking questions about Omicron, not Delta. And so really, maybe we don't actually get to these constitutional or admin law questions. Maybe we really need to ask, first and foremost, is there a compelling state interest in the vaccine mandates as issued, given the current circumstances?
0: Yeah, this is huge. I mean, because if the, the vaccine is no longer, and we call them a, a quote unquote vaccine, if these are no longer relevant, if they're no longer uh, doing their job then it makes no sense. makes absolutely no sense for them to be required. Uh, What about the boosters? Okay. You know, we've heard them say, well, you need boosters. Take take your third booster, fourth booster. Um, Is that solving the problem? Does that somehow justify uh, mandates if they require the, the boosters as well?
1: Well, uh, the the boosters is really a separate issue. Do the boosters work? Seems like they increase antibodies. We don't know for how long. We don't know for whom and what individuals. We're seeing them authorized for only specific pockets of the population thus far. But the boosters are not mentioned, discussed, or considered anywhere in the federal mandates. The federal mandates are talking about receiving the vaccines as of November 5, two doses depending on, you know, two doses or one depending on which vaccine you get. They, they don't contemplate Omicron and they certainly don't address the issue of boosting. And, and what I think that really gets to is the point that it really the second question, which really leads you back to the first, so maybe it's circular, but it's not. The, the point is these admin agencies, national agencies, are not supposed to be reacting and responding to something like this. They're not equipped to do it. When they tried to do it, they cut quarters. They probably did not comply with something called the Administrative Procedure Act and even, even moving as fast as they could, they were still much too slow, didn't get the job done correctly, and probably never had the authority to do it in the first case. And now we have an outdated mandate that doesn't even address the real situation on the ground, which is Omicron or Omicron.
0: Yeah, I know. And, uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett uh, made that really clear during the whole argument uh, that uh, they skipped the basic uh, administrative review process. When it comes to these kinds of uh, of mandates and changing policies, as far as OSHA goes, so the fact that they skipped this process, they said, "Oh no, this is an emergency." Emer- you know, this is emergency temporary standard. It's called, uh, and there seemed to be no limit on on how long this could be dragged out. Another justice pointed that out, said, "Well, would it last for a month? Would it last for two months? Or last two another two years?" We've already been under. You know, control by the government regarding these mandates and different restrictions for two years? Would it be another two years, another five years? Uh, and the government didn't know. So th- this is a real problem in terms of keeping government at bay. Uh, I see that very clearly. And the, the fact that Pfizer just recently came out and announced that they're going to have a vaccine specifically for Omicron in about 100 days. Well, Emily, as I understand it, this Omicron is supposed to be pretty much history by the end of this month. So, it, it, I mean, are they gonna try to push another vaccine that is irrelevant? I mean, that seems to, that seems to be the logic. It's, it doesn't seem like it's about caring for people. It's about more uh, making money for big pharmaceutical companies. At least that's, that's how it appears to many.
1: I mean, if you're Pfizer and if you're on their board, of course you want to say, we're gonna make this new vaccine. We're gonna require it for everyone in the country because why wouldn't you? Um, but, you, you know, I think it's really telling to think about the oral arguments and think when you when you think about what the government said, what the, some of the justices said, you know, what was said and what really wasn't talked about. You didn't hear a lot of discussion, you know, except for Amy Coney Barrett, as you point out, of course. You, you didn't hear a lot of discussion about Omicron because, again, that wasn't really part of the original mandate. So, you, you know, why, why are we talking about Delta? And then what, what you did hear and was just – you know, the, the Wall Street Journal, I believe, used the word wild, some wild numbers. And I know you talked about this this yesterday. Sotomayor, Justice Sotomayor, you know, told us that we had 100,000 children apparently in the hospital on ventilators. And, and, and you know, CDC director, Rochelle Walensky, said uh, just two days later, no, it's maybe 3,500. We know from the CDC numbers in, in total, there have been maybe a little bit about approximately 80,000 in the entire two-year, now three-year history of COVID, so it's somewhat baffling. There was less talk, but um, Justice um, Breyer also said that apparently if we mandated the vaccine, it was going to stop all cases of COVID, which he approximated to be 750,000 new cases a day. So it's concerning what we did here, and it's also concerning what we didn't hear, and I think that's what the Wall Street Journal article, the op-ed, was really getting at, which is that we need to be talking about the actual problem right now, which of course is Omicron. And, and the question of, you know, the actual essential nature of this vaccine mandate should really be something we need to be asking. Not just not just these constitutional and admin law questions. Very important, obviously relevant, but there's a basic question that we need to actually be considering.
0: Yeah. I really wish this had been brought up in oral argument that Omicron is is a, a game changer. Uh it is an invalidation of uh, the the vaccines, you know, the fact that Justice Breyer says that uh, the mandate will prevent all new COVID infections. We're, I mean, that makes no sense. That's 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 totally not true. The the vaccines are not preventing the new infections, which are dominating, which is Omicron. So, this is very disappointing that we've got these justices about to make these broad decisions impacting businesses and hospitals, and they don't even have the the basic facts straight. So. Do you think that Omicron will impact the Supreme Court uh, ruling that we're expecting to come out any time now?
1: Uh, Yes, but I think ironically, it's going to mostly impact the kind of of wild claims we heard from the pro mandate justices. Well, they'll, you know, they'll talk about these new surges and these new cases, which means the vaccine is all the more important. And again, it's important to say that it's not about whether or not the vaccine prevents hospitalizations or deaths the claim being made by the government in defense of its mandates is that the vaccine can stop transmission. And you did hear, we did hear a lot in the oral arguments saying that well, what about protecting the unvaccinated? And interestingly, the government said, what about people who cannot get vaccinated because of medical or religious reasons? Even the government conceded that there were religious exemptions to the mandates. But what they didn't you know, address was the fact that Omicron is not not being effectively stopped in in terms of transmission by the vaccine. In fact, just today, the WHO shockingly said they expect half of Europe, half of Europe, to be infected with the Omicron variant within six to eight weeks.
0: Yeah, I'm not surprised. I know it's spreading very fast. It's already peaked in New York, Maryland, Washington DC, I think Florida as well. Uh, So it's already peaking in some parts of the United States. Uh, experts that I've heard and listened to say by the end of January, it's it's done. We're done with it, effectively. Uh, so, but they're they're acting. The CDC is acting like this is something that's going to be plaguing us for months and months, and we need to get everyone still vaccinated with a vaccine that really doesn't work with regard to Omicron, doesn't prevent transmission. Um, it, it just makes absolutely no sense. It's uh, it's very disturbing to to see this. Do you, has Omicron? Do you think has Omicron uh, impacted the Center for Disease Control uh, at all? Because Emily, you know, in the past they've cited, you know, this is how many people have died uh, from uh, the virus in terms of, you know, the different you know, breakdowns. Right now we're getting no information about fatalities specifically to uh, regarding Omicron, and uh, I, I'm really baffled or cynical, if you will. Uh, for the fact that they're, for some reason, not releasing this information, which I think would, would prove that we don't have a pandemic anymore. We don't have a, an emergency because the fatalities just simply aren't there with regard to Omicron.
1: The, the lack of transparency with respect to data is is and has been and continues to be deeply disturbing. We saw New York actually release some of its numbers where they started to admit that there's a difference between being hospitalized with COVID as opposed to being hospitalized for COVID, right? You you may have cancer, but if you you go to hospital for a broken arm, it doesn't mean that cancer caused you to be hospitalized, right? So too, we are now seeing admissions that just because you are admitted to the hospital and you have COVID, that doesn't mean that's the reason you were were admitted to the hospital. You can be admitted for another reason. And in New York, we saw it was only about 57% of people who were admitted had COVID anywhere on that admission chart you know, the other 43% were subsequently tested and shown to have COVID. Okay. But those 43% of those people, those in hospital admissions didn't have anything to do with COVID. And like you say, we haven't seen any national numbers. And the question is becoming, well, okay, is is the CDC going to shift any of their advice, any any of their discussion of COVID in light of Omicron? And and the answer is yes, but no. We're seeing more discussion about living with the virus, accepting the fact that Many people are going to get Omicron. And, and and the real kind of head turn that stood up and take notice came when on CNN, in an interview, Rochelle Walensky actually said, we no longer expect that the vaccine is going to stop transmission. That was a drop the mic, listen up, take notes, and, and maybe rethink some of our positions and some of these mandates.
0: Yeah, but apparently the CDC isn't uh, doing that. They're just standing by the, the script, the pro-Big Pharma script of we need the drugs, we need, we need the, the uh, vaccines, and we need to have them implemented, we need the government to, to pay more. Uh, I, I'm very, very cynical when we see the evidence that came out of South Africa, the UK, Denmark, other places, clearly showing that unlike the other variances, Omicron does not have the death rate. Uh, it does not have the fatality rate. That the other ones had, it's nothing near what the other ones had. It's simply statistically, so far it looks like it's just a bad, bad cold, and people need to take it seriously. Some people are going to be impacted because of pre-existing conditions, uh, but the fact that the CDC is not upfront with the information now that the information is not playing into to their agenda is very disturbing, very alarming, and the American people should uh, should remember this at the very least, when it comes to the next election. Uh, California has done something recently uh, regarding the Omicron, what's that?
1: Well, very, very recently and, and very quietly, on January 8th, this weekend, the California, California Department of Public Health, CDPH, if you hear people talking about that, the CDPH made a, made a change in their rules. And they, they simply said, if you test positive for COVID, and you work in a hospital, you can still go to work. If you're asymptomatic, but you have COVID, you can go to work. They said they would prefer it if if you're COVID positive to, you know, have you working with other COVID positive patients, but that is not a requirement. And this is going to be at least in effect until February 1st. And so to repeat, California has said that if you are COVID positive, but you work at a hospital, you can still go to work and you do not need to quarantine because they have such a crisis Um, of staffing at certain hospitals. So if you have, if your hospital's in that situation and you're short on nurses and doctors or other staff, you can have COVID positive people come to work. And and of course, some of us might remember very recently that a lot of people in California were fired from hospitals.
0: Right, so here we have, I want people to understand this because we have Pacific Justice Institute right now in our offices across the country. We're defending and representing a lot of doctors and nurses that were fired from their jobs, they didn't have COVID, they didn't wanna take the vaccine, so they're willing to wear the mask, do the testing, and the hospital says, no, you're fired. It's like, it's like it's insane. It's like they don't care about the patients.
1: Pacific Justice Institute invites you to join in the fight to protect our religious liberties. Consider volunteering in one of our California offices or become an affiliate attorney. Visit our website to find out more. PJI.org. And while you're there, subscribe to our Legal Insider to keep updated on all of our current cases. Pacific Justice Institute. Together, we can make a difference.
0: Well, folks, there you have it. It's our God given freedoms we're talking about. Now, let's choose to keep them. I'm Brad Dacus on behalf of the Pacific Justice Institute. Let's continue the fight for your freedoms. Thank you for listening in today. To find out more about the Pacific Justice Institute or the Dacus Report, call 916-857-6900 or log on to pacificjustice.org.